Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast for Salem Heights Church. We meet weekly at 9 and 11 a.m. For more information, visit SalemHeightsChurch.org. Well, aren't you glad to be here this morning? Yeah. I'm super thankful. I I just want to remind you of a couple of uh, things as we get started again this week. We've been doing all of this work, traveling over here to Corbin. They've been uh, amazing for us, um, just blessed us with this place. If you see a Corbin student, uh, we didn't do this before, but uh, if you're a Corbin student in here and you just raise your hand really quick, all right? Can we give them a hand? Yeah, for these guys that are in here. Now, this is my challenge to you this week, and we'll do more things for them in the future. If you find a Corbin student here, you say hi to them, you meet them, I want you to give them, on the way out today, this is what I want you to think about doing. College student, okay? Some walking around money. All right? They need to buy a coffee, they need something. I don't even know what hipsters do these days, but you need to help them afford whatever that is, all right? So this is your goal today. Before you leave, I want you to find a Corbin student and somehow bless them before you go. Can you do that? All right, that's an amen from everyone on this campus. If you're watching from someplace else, just send a check, okay? Bless them, that'll be great. The other thing to remember, this is a family service, so from time to time, we're gonna have a little competition with the preacher, all right? I want you to just remember to bless those parents for bringing their kids into our worship time together. Aren't you thankful for that also? I actually think there's gonna be a season in the future where you are going to miss those little voices. And some of you have told me that's not the case. (laughs) I promise you, it will be. This is a sweet, sweet time. And so bless those parents as they are are helping, uh, helping their kids learn how to worship. I I wanted to start this morning, because we have so many uh, distracted, fidgety, undeveloped minds in the room, I wanted us to start with pictures, okay? But I was also thinking of your kids. Scott McKnight, in a book called The Jesus Creed, says this. He says, yellow is not my favorite color, but now that I know the story of Vincent Van Gogh, I've come to value yellow differently. This famous Dutch painter sadly tossed away the truth imparted to him in his Christian home, sank into a depression, self-destruction in his life. By the grace of God, he later began to embrace that truth again, and his life took on hope, and he gave that hope a color. The best-kept secret of Van Gogh's life is that the truth that he was discovering is seen in the gradual increase of the presence of the color yellow in his paintings. Yellow evoked for him the hope and warmth, the truth of God's love. I just want you to see this kind of emerge in his paintings. Early on, after his father had died, he painted something that's called the still life with a Bible. His father died, you will notice this, his father was a pastor, had tried to train Van Gogh for ministry. Van Gogh did not do well in ministry, he didn't connect with people. Uh, He didn't really like him all that much, turns out. But in his description of what it looks like to live a life with the Bible, the Bible is open very reverently, it's open to a flat space. It looks like if you were to kind of count the pages where he's at, he's somewhere in the New Testament, maybe even the book of Matthew. But sitting in the foreground there in this dark picture, The only book that is worn is what was at the time a well-known French novel. 
How do I really live my life? What is it that I'm really focused on? This French novel that's talking about life in a boisterous opposite of the Bible uh, is sitting right in front of it. Here is this well-worn book. The book that should be well-worn is just open to whatever would be inspirational left for Sundays. No light there. But if you take a look at one of his depressing moments, uh, a famous painting called The Starry Night, his belief in God begins to emerge. And you can see there that the moon reflecting the light of the sun and the stars have this yellow color. In fact, what his belief was at the time was that the only place that he could find the truth about God was in nature. It began to speak to him. But notice in the foreground, you have a church that is there just kind of buried in all the other dark colors and there is no light coming from the church. The only light's coming from the heavens comes out of that depressive period and he begins to reemerge in uh, this understanding of who Christ is and what he could be. And he had a painting called The Sower. You can see in the backdrop of The Sower, the sun is coming up, a picture of God, his goodness, his grace. There's a full field in the background. That's where there is fruit that has happened in this sower's life. But this sower is going out to sow and you can see in the field there is as of yet nothing uh, that is gold except for this little trail, a path that reminds him where he's supposed to walk. There used to be gold here, but now it's just this muddy color. He's hoping that he can achieve what is that glory that's behind him. But the sower in this painting, Van Gogh, in his own mind, is the same color as the field. Potential is there, but not yet truth. You come to the end, and he did a famous painting called The Portrait of a Peasant. In this painting... Van Gogh actually had been at that, toward the end of his life in a coffee shop that he would frequent, and he sees this man standing uh, near him, and it was a shocking reminder of his father. In fact, he looked exactly like his father, and so he said, may I paint you? And he gets a shepherd's staff, he has this man with his hat, but he began to look back on who his father really was, and as he reflected on his father's life, the way he lived who he influenced, the way that he died. He has a different reflection than he had at the very beginning with that Bible and darkness and no light at all. He actually, in his remembrance of his father, of who he really was and what he stood for, his opinion changed. All around him is this glowing gold. It just fills up the picture. His hat is gold. Uh, there's gold tones even in his features uh, all throughout this man. He is radiating with this truth. There was a famous letter that he sent right around the time of this painting to a friend of his, Emile Bernard. He says he had heard that he was reading the Bible, and he says, you do very well to be reading the Bible. He says, Christ alone, of all philosophers and magicians, has affirmed eternal life as the most important certainty, the infinity of time, the futility of death, the necessity and purpose of serenity and devotion. He lived serenely as an artist greater than all other artists. Scorning marble and clay, paint, working in living flesh. In other words, this peerless artist, scarcely conceivable with a blunt instrument of our modern, nervous, obtuse brains, made neither statues or paintings or books. He maintained in no uncertain terms that he made living men immortal. That is profoundly a serious matter. The more so as it is the truth. This is just in the year before he would pass away. Van Gogh's life 
revealed in the color gold, a slow emergent, even though he had all that truth as a young man, he scorned it, ended up in a period where all he painted was darkness, but eventually he ends at that season where he sees the radiance of God's glory and prays. If possible, could that happen in my own life? Van Gogh's life follows a familiar trajectory. And it's a trajectory that we'll see in the life of a man called Jacob, but I believe it's also a trajectory that we see consistently in our lives. And that's what I would have us consider this morning. Are you with me? Pictures for the young mind, the Bible for the deep, okay? (laughs) Hebrews chapter 11 is where we're going to start, but also we're going to be in Genesis. So if you Uh, Take your finger and put it there in Genesis, this story of Jacob, Genesis chapter 28. Pop your finger there, go over to uh, Hebrews chapter 11. If you're looking this up on your phone, you're going to be way quicker than all the rest of us uh, flipping around, but we'll have our memories with us. Let's stand and read God's word together. Hebrews chapter 11, famous story of faith we've covered many of these names, but just one phrase in here, save for Jacob, and the scripture says this. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, and he worshiped, leaning on his staff. Do you believe that happened? Now in Genesis chapter 28, we see the beginning of that story. It ends in Hebrews with a summary statement. His walk of faith really starts here. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran and he reached a certain place and he spent the night there because the sun had set. And he took one of the stones from that place and he put it at his head and he laid down at that place. And he dreamed. A stairway was set up on the ground and its top reached the sky and the angels were going up and down on it. And the Lord was standing there beside him saying, I am the Lord, the God of your father, Abraham, and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your offspring the land on which you are lying. Your offspring will be like the dust of the earth. You'll spread out toward the west, the east, the north, the south. All the peoples of earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. Look, I am with you. I will watch over you wherever you go. That should be underlined. I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised. And when Jacob awoke from his sleep, he said, surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. He was afraid and said, what an awesome place this is. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Do you believe that actually happened? You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, I just pray that you will help us right now as we take a brief few moments to take a look at Jacob's life. Help us to be able to see not only what you did in Jacob's life, the fact that you were with him every step of the way, even though he in his heart was not with you. Father, in the same way, I pray that you would guide us. Help us to sense you shepherding, intending, pushing us forward in life in areas where we need to grow, taking care of the growth where we couldn't manage it ourselves. And Father, I pray that you would help us find us at the end of our days, yielded, secure, aware of your goodness, but radiating that to those around us. Father, give us, I pray, a story like Jacob's. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
In this series, The Unseen Hand, uh, we've had a phrase we've, we've repeated every single week, and that is in every generation, God's unseen hand is working all things together for our good and to his glory. We see this in the life of Jacob. The unseen hand of God is moving Jacob. At times in Jacob's life, he was actually seen. He would shock him to awareness. But all the rest of his life, till he sees Pharaoh 130 years, just a couple of episodes where he's shockingly aware, the rest of the time, God taking care of all the details, even though Jacob was living his own life. I want us to notice this morning Uh, Because I think if you were just to listen to the series and we see these beautiful things that God does in the life of the believer, you could mistakenly walk away and believe that it's kind of a health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. It's all going to work out in the end. It's all going to be okay, right? But that's not how Scripture describes a walk of faith. I want us to see that even though God is constantly at work, we tend to be at war with him. Do you believe that? Anybody in here ever know what God would have you do, know what God would have you think, know where God would have you focus and do something different? So how do you end up with a life of faith at the end? How is it that so many of our senior saints have this story where God is the greatest part of their life, where the people around them know of their faith, where they can express that God has been taking care of them all of their lives? And yet they're wired just like us, right? You might be sitting next to a senior saint and you're afraid to say, yes, they are. (laughs) They struggle just like us. I want us to notice something in Jacob's life that I think is true in the life of each believer. And that is that God tends to move believers forward in stages. There's a uh, pastor, R. Sonny Mazar. Uh, He has a, a series that he does uh, a journey to authenticity where he looks at the, the natural trajectory of a Christian's life and he has a little chart that he put together that is incredibly helpful. Um, that journey to authenticity, R. Sonny Mazar, if you look that up, you'll see this right on the, the front page, it'll show up online. But he has this little map here and it's intriguing to me if you were to take a look at these stages, he has six stages that are there but it starts at the cross, stage one, new life, Stage two, and today we'll combine stage two and three, that learner, warrior, the excitement of your faith, the energy of coming to Christ, wanting to be a warrior for him, tends to go into another stage, stage four, brokenness, where you begin to battle with the old life, carnality, pseudo-Christianity, where you just think that you're spiritual, you think that you have all of the answers, but the reality is it's not working itself out in your life and you finally arrive at a settled place of surrender, stage five, and then authenticity. You'll notice that little line in the middle, the authentic self, you become more authentic as you settle into who Christ is, not what you can do. If you were just to look for a New Testament model of this, you start at stage one with Romans chapter five and you work your way right straight forward. Romans five, Romans six, Romans seven, stage four. The things that I don't wanna do, I do. The things that I wanna do, I don't do. Wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? You end up at stage five, uh, chapter eight, and you move forward in grace. This is the pattern of life. I want you to see that this is also the pattern in Jacob's life. Five stages in Jacob's life. We just read about this in this, uh, this man's life. Genesis chapter 28, verse 16. 
I want you to remember what was happening with Jacob. Jacob is actually running right now from his family. He has stolen a blessing. Now, when he was still in his mother's womb, the Lord told her that the younger will be over the older, that the older would serve the younger, that there's two nations at war in her womb, uh, but the younger one would win. He was a child of the promise and also he would carry the family promise forward. He had heard these stories. He'd maybe even heard them from his own father. And yet he thinks that through deception and strength that he has to somehow grab and deceive his family in order to get that blessing. Now we know that the God of the Bible will always take care of his promises, amen? If he's promises something's gonna happen, it's gonna happen. But Jacob foolishly believed that the only reason that he had the blessing was because of his deception, not because of God's goodness. And so he finds himself, the child of the blessing, the inheritor of everything, running from his home and all he has is a cloak. He lays down next to a place that he'd heard that his grandfather had camped at some other time. He's on his way to Haran where his grandpa had gotten a start a long time ago. Came out of there, with, uh, out of Ur and into Haran with Lot. He's like, I'm going to go back. There's some people back there that might take care of me. He has only his cloak and he lays down his head at night and he has this shocking vision where God says, look, I don't know where you're going, little man. But he says, I'm the one that's going to take care of you. And he sees all of the, the angels of heaven ascending and descending on this ladder. Jesus would use this picture with his own disciples. Jacob awakes in that moment and he has this shocking understanding. Surely God was in this place and I didn't know it. How awesome was this place? Now park that in your mind. He goes from agnostic, that is, yeah, I think God might be there, but I'm not sure if he's really for me, to aware of God's Grace of his nearness. This will be a conversion moment. There's a second stage that we see in Jacob's life, and that's where he goes from wrestling to worship. Genesis 32, 31, we see him now. He's come back by. Jacob made a promise at that place when he said, surely God is in this place. He said, you know, I've only got a cloak. If I come back by here and everything that I've ever dreamed of is mine, I've got wives, I've got children, I've got livestock. If he provides for me in this supernatural way, then you'll be my God. How many people have said that? Lord, if you just give me this in business or give me this in my family or do these things, I will serve you. Anybody got a business plan where after I retire, I'll start serving the Lord? We've all heard those. This is Jacob's promise. Give me everything that I want, everything that I need, I'll happily serve you. Well, he comes back near this place. He passes by it and comes to a brook called Jabbok. It literally means a place of the pouring out. He's there, he has every single thing that he's wanted. He is still afraid, he is still unnerved. He still thinks the only way for him to move forward is through graft and lying and trying to grab onto things. And in chapter 32, verse 31, we see the summary of his interaction. Jacob meets a man there who, after he has sent all of his family ahead of him, he's sent everybody across the water Jacob wrestles with this man all night long and he discovers that it's God. In fact, he names the place Penuel, the face of God. After a night of wrestling, Jacob starts by wrestling, trying to fight this man, trying to destroy him. At the end, he's hanging on to him, begging for a blessing. Sounds like our walk with the Lord, doesn't it? Pushing him away to hanging on to him and the, the man touches him on the socket of the hip, dislocates his hip. He would never be the same. 
Jacob thought that he had gotten there by strength. God removes his ability to have any strength at all and he renames him. You're no longer Jacob the deceiver, you are now Israel. God fights. Not you're fighting with God, but God fights for you. I'm gonna remove any misconception that your strength is what's gonna do the next chapter of your life. And an interesting statement is here. After this interaction, it says, verse 31, that the sun shone on him as he passed by Penuel, or literally, the sun shone on him as he passed by the face of God, limping because of his hip. The sun is shining on his back, He's marked by this engagement and the rest of his life starts to unfold. He went from wrestling to worship. With me so far? Third stage, God tends to move people through, move Jacob through. We see this in the New Testament, even in the book of Romans, an internal battle. Jacob's next stage of life was internal. He begins to battle with idolatry and it ultimately leads him to brokenness. Have you ever known that there's a commitment in your life that you're supposed to live up to, but you've never really vocalized that to the people around you? Have you ever looked at what your family was focused on or the people that you love was focused, were focused on and known that you're supposed to take a stand or move them forward, but you did not have the ability to say something about it? I, I remember hearing about this couple and they were having a fight and the, the guy finally looks at his wife and he says, look, your mom has been living with us for 20 years. Don't you think it's time for her to find her own place? And she says, my mom, I thought she was your mom. <laughs> at some point you realize you should have had a conversation a little earlier in the story. Jacob is supposed to have a conversation with his family. He hasn't had it. Genesis 35 too. Look at what's happened. I want you to go back to that place where I met you at the beginning. Okay? 50 years removed from when that episode happens. 60 years removed from him saying, surely God was in this place and I knew it not. He says, I want you to go back to Bethel. And Jacob says, what? Bethel? He looks at his family and in 35 verse 2, this is what he says. So Jacob said to his family and all who were with him, quick, Get rid of the foreign gods that are among you. Purify yourselves and change your clothes. We must get up and go to Bethel and I will build an altar there to the God who answered me in the day of my distress. He has been with me everywhere that I have gone. Now he didn't say, hey, I wonder, is it possible that some of you have idols? What does he say? Get rid of the foreign gods that are among you. This is what's happened. In the family of God's man, there are actually things that have been taking up residence. The only reason that you would have these little idols inside your tent that would be traveling with you is, as you are going through your life, you would say, I'm serving God, God's taking care of me, but there are little things that you are feeding on the side that you thought were actually the reason that you were succeeding. The gods of money, sex, power, expanse, whatever it would be, all of these little idols were inside there. And the ability to grow my family, the ability to gain wealth, the ability for the flocks to grow, these little idols are in there. And his family had been secretly leaving some kind of ornamentation, wearing some kind of sacrifice. And he says, you know what, the God that's actually been with me, the reason all of this stuff exists, he's called me to account. I know that all this is going on. We gotta set it aside. Internal battle that he had, he knew that was there. He didn't ask if it was there, he revealed it. 
But then a fourth stage for him was external. It wasn't just the internal battle that he was working through. There's an external battle. He begins to have a battle with hardship. He's gone back to Bethel. He has all of these things in the rest of life before him. He's given his life back to God, but he's missing a son. There's one pastor I was listening to, and after a a long series of counseling with a bunch of people, he looked at his audience and he said, there is no pain like kid pain. There's no pain like the loss of a child. There's no pain like a wayward child. There's no pain like a struggle in your family. From internal wrestling, he moves to external battles. He has hardship all the way till he's 130 years old. And finally he discovers that the son that he thought was dead is alive. And he comes down to Egypt, he and all the rest of his family. They arrive finally at this place, 70 strong. All the rest of the world is in famine. Only Joseph has been able to secure them a place. And Jacob is there in a place called Goshen, where it's the only place that's green. It's the only place where there's any fatness. It's the only place where there's any grain. And all that hardship has led to him being separated. In 47, 9, and 10, he says this to Pharaoh. He says, Pharaoh, my pilgrimage, the days of my sojourning, some Bibles say, has lasted 130 years. My years have been few and hard, and they have not yet reached the years of my ancestors during their pilgrimage. I've gotten here to this place. I have not yet reached the years of my ancestors, or literally, I have not yet reached the place where I am happy and settled. 130 years through hardship, I have gone from thinking I know how to control things to finally being aware I don't control anything. I don't understand how I even landed here. The days of my sojourning have been hard, but I'm separated out and settled. But there's a final stage. Genesis 48, 16, it's the one that actually gets brought up in Hebrews. This is the final stage in the the, the direction that God was pushing Jacob his entire time. Now, we don't know if he could have gotten there earlier, but we do know it seems to be the pattern of a life. And in our own lives, we can probably see these same things. The pattern of a life seems to take this this tension and these battles, the internal battles, the external battles, that growing towards brokenness, And the place where we we leave all of that bitterness behind, where holiness begins to take over, rather than focusing on happiness, we just want to be right with God. And we come to the final stage, and you know you're there when you speak like Jacob, Genesis 48, 16. He's reflecting on his life, and he goes all the way back to Bethel. I'll start in verse 15. He says, he blessed Joseph. And he says, the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day, the angel who redeemed me from all harm. Notice the separation there, but he still believes that is God. He's speaking of of Jesus, the one who met him. May he bless these boys. May they be called by my name and the names of my fathers Abraham and Isaac. May they grow and be numerous in the land. He would go on and say, Put my bones back where we came from. Put my bones back in the promised land. When you die, put your bones there as well. Why? Because the story isn't about me and where I'm at right now. It's not about my stuff. It's not about my inheritance. The story is about God's plan, God's kingdom, God's future, his promise. It's not me, it's God. Amen? 
That's the story of a life. That's what God pushes us to in stages. There are a few of us who discover who we are by being told. Jacob was told that he's going to be this great man at the very beginning. He says, surely God is in this place and I didn't know it. But he did not live out what he knew until he had experienced the rest of life. Few of us can be told. You cannot learn how to fully walk out the Christian life in school. Amen goes there. You can't learn it in a class. You can't learn it in a cloistered place inside of the church. You can't get discipled inside of a room on how to live. You want to know where you learn how to walk out your faith? Out there in the world. You live it every single day when you're going to work, when you're walking with people, when you're at the grocery store, when you see the mess that the world is in, you begin to walk out your faith and that is where all of it gets applied. Amen? Amen. You learn these truths from the book, but you apply them and Jacob has slowly had to apply the things he already knew were true. He had to let them settle into his soul until he could say, it's not about me, it's about him. Another thing that we can see here is that trials do not reveal who we are to us. They remind us who we are to God. His name went from Jacob. You're a deceiver. And that's how he thought he got his strength. When he runs into his wife, he has to uncap a well. And he's showing his strength. All the rest of the men said, who could uncap this? We're waiting for a bunch of guys to show up so we can get rid of it. He does it by his own strength. Yeah, he might have been in the bakery and cooking stew for his brother, but he was a strong man, and he felt like his strength and his craftiness had won the day. What he discovers is, actually, God can strip all that away, and you would still matter to him. You're not strong, Jacob, because of everything that you have engineered. You're strong because God fights for you. By the way, the only hope any of us have in the room is not our ability to finagle our way out of whatever problem is sitting with us right now in this service. We need to rely on a God who has the story in his hands. Amen? Well, there's a lot of points that was there, but that was just one point, believe it or not. Okay. There's only one more, and then we'll have the Lord's Supper. The goal of God's guidance is not a better perspective. It's an eternal one. The goal of God's guidance is not a better perspective, it's an eternal one. There's two phrases here I want you to wrap your mind around, and I just want you to hear me reflect on it in my own life. That phrase, surely God was in this place and I knew it not. I have a picture of uh, this little home. Look at those guys. Uh, that was back when Dumb and Dumber haircuts were popular. This is a little house that my mom and dad still own on the river down in Roseburg. You can see all the trees and the kind of the mess behind it. The color of the house, yes, is brown with yellow trim. That was hip back then. Actually, it probably wasn't. It was probably free. This is us sitting there. That's a log that's washed up from the river being at a high water mark near the house. Happened once again to them just recently. I can remember a lot of years where I was sitting in that house. And it was great in the summer. We lived on the river. My brother and I were basically Huck Finn and Tom Sawyer. Nobody corralled us. My mom was really eager to have us be out of the house. <laughs> we ran around on that hillside. We went all between there and a place called Amaker Park. We would uh, go. It was miles of just river and forest and 
my parents, you know, not really even praying we would come home. <laughs> in the wintertime, it would get dark, the fog would roll in, it would be rainy like it's been here in this area, and I can remember sitting there in those dark days. And I love to read, I would read stories about other locations, and I can remember thinking, is this all there is? This little podunk place, but a logging community, simple people. Until I come to Christ and I'm called into ministry and I realize surely God was in this place and I didn't know it. I didn't care. There's another little place that we have. It's Melrose Community Church. Here's my grandma and grandpa, one of the few times that they would come out to see us. Little tiny church that was up at the, the foothills there, the Callahans. Didn't matter much to most people. You had to drive a long way to get out to it. There's us in our cool haircuts once again. You know, I didn't notice this before, but that's the same shirt I'm wearing. I think that was, <laughs> that was the shirt I had for those three or four years. It's, it's washed. Here we are at Melrose Community Church, a little community of about 150 people. Is there anything going on here? I don't know. You feel trapped on Sundays sometimes. We got there, I can remember, I was seven years old. My brother was five. Charlie Allison had just come to our house, been kicked out of our house multiple times, begged our family to come to church. If you come, I'll leave you alone. We went, and my entire family gets saved. We grow up in that church, but I, I couldn't imagine anything good coming from that church. I grow up and I get called into ministry, and I, I come up here to what was then Western Baptist. And I discover that at Western Seminary, there is a Greek professor who was my Sunday school teacher at that time. His younger brother, Mitch, actually working with the police officers even right now as a, uh, a chaplain. There's another two more pastors that were in the valley, uh, Paul Jackson, who I believe now is retired, and, uh, and another uh, Todd that was uh, in this area. There were three other missionaries. There were multiple people that got called in, all from my generation out of this little church of 150 people. A disproportionate number, over 10% of them, called into full-time ministry that remained the rest of their life, transformed by what I would call as a mini-revival. Unaware of the significance of the people that were around me, I'm aware now, surely God is in this place. And I didn't know it. One last picture from my childhood. And I say that, that's Christina, that's my wife. Junior, senior banquet, look at us, two little kids. We would get, by the way, look how tiny we are. Oh, that's amazing. We were married three years later after this picture right here. Junior, senior banquet, childhood sweetheart. I could say that even though it was high school. Meet her in this place, this little school that we were at. I, I just was picking the most wonderful person that I could think of. Um, she wasn't exactly hitching herself to a star. <laughs> we fell in love. But you know what I discovered later uh, as she has invariably through different seasons, and I, I, I told her I was going to share. Been one of the, the strengths in my own heart and in my own life. When I got sick, who was the one that God had put right beside me, praying and encouraging, 
is this gal. Surely God was in this place, and I didn't know it. We don't pay attention to the things around. We pay attention to our own plans, our own graft, our own ability. I don't have a picture of him. But there was a man, Charlie Allison, who had been one of the people who had touched my life when we were at Melrose. And he shares with us the gospel. He was one of the ones that was there when I had that awareness. Surely God is in this place and I didn't know it. But the final time that I met with Charlie, he had given me a Bible. I was at Western Baptist at the time. I was getting ready to graduate. And Charlie had seen me grow up. He had participated in part in my discipleship. He met me at Pizza Hut in Roseburg before they demolished it. Meets me down here at this place. I, I don't think Charlie had any money his final days. Little pastor. He had $20 in his wallet. He said, this is all I can give you, Justin. I had driven down to see him. It was the last time I would see him. He would pass away a week later. And an accident. And he said to me at that time, he said, you're going to come into a lot of problems. Highs, lows, whatever it is. You cling to Jesus and you live your life by the book. And instead of telling me all about his life or who he was, he spent that last final moments telling me about Jesus. And he said that the same God who had blessed him in ministry, may he bless you. It's the sign of a life that has been focused in the right place. There's a lot of us that are living by graft even this morning. You've been thinking maybe even all the way up to today, how can I get out of this problem or how can I do this next season or how can I con convince these people of these things or this next episode, whatever it would be. What God's been pushing you towards the entire time is that you would see that he is the one that redeems. He is the one that takes care of your life. He is the one that you've got to yield to and when you get to that place, you'll stop focusing on you and you will bless the people around, amen? But an eternal perspective starts with us stop, stopping looking at just what is around us and looking to eternity, looking to Christ. Uh, the Lord's given us an opportunity. We have the chance to live out that promise. I want you right now to take out these elements and we're gonna take time to do something that Jacob was able to do at the end of his life, but not in full like we are. We're gonna participate in the Lord's Supper. If on the way in, you did not get those elements, the men have those, just raise your hand and leave them up. We'll find some way inside here to get those to you. We want you to have these elements, but we're gonna take a moment right now because God is also pressing us in stages and one of the ways that he pulls us forward to the place where we'll have an eternal perspective is he uses the Lord's Supper to do it, amen? amen. It reminds us not only of what it costs for our salvation, Christ's death, burial, and resurrection for our sins. That's the purchase price of eternal life. It's the purchase price of being in the family of God. But it also is what calls us into heaven. That's what gives us eternity. Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, and it says that we are to do this until we see him, until he returns. It's a meal right now that comes with a perspective change and a promise. He is coming again. Amen? Amen? It says before that we take these elements, though, we're to investigate our own hearts. So if you don't have those elements, raise your hand. They'll get them to you. Uh, but for the rest of us, I just want us to bow our heads.
close our eyes, and I want us to take a few moments right now to consider, is there anything, and we might have talked about a lot of stuff here that was in your trail, is there anything in the way between you and the Lord? Is there anything getting in the way of you getting to that final stage and pushing forward? Are there some things in your life that you're battling with? Scripture tells us if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. For those that are watching at home, this would be the opportunity to go get those elements. For those that are at the chapel at church when you watch this, uh, this would be the time to switch to the live uh, moment there in the chapel. But for us here, this is our opportunity to reflect. Bow our heads, close our eyes. I'm gonna pray. We're gonna sing a song. And as you do that, if if the Lord brings anything up to your heart, make sure that you take care of that with him right now. Let's pray. Father, we ask you to guide us. Help us, just like you guided Jacob, you took his hand, you moved him forward. Father, I pray that you would help us in our own lives to consider where it is that we are with you. If there's anything between us and you, we pray that you would take care of it. Father, we confess it right now, the sin in our life, the things that are wrong. Father, we pray that you would transform our thinking, cause us to yield and give those things to you. Help us to know that we're forgiven. In Jesus' name. Amen.